All right, everybody, welcome back to another episode of 15 Minutes with Dr. Norfleet. Today, I'm joined by my big sis, Dr. Ye. Everybody say hello. How you doing, Dr. Ye? Good. How are you? Good. So this is a very special episode for me because when I used to work on Skid Row, Dr. Ye was my mentor um, and peer supervisor. Um, so she read all of my intakes and gave me feedback on my sessions and essentially has taught me basically everything that I know. <laughs> that is so sweet. <laughs> so um very excited to have her on the show. Um Another cool thing about her is she's worked for a lot of different settings. Like I know you've worked for VA mm -hmm. and we worked together on Skid Row. Um, so why don't you tell us a little bit about what you do right now? So right now I work at the, uh, the Bureau of Prisons as a correctional psychologist, um, specifically working through trauma treatment. And I've gotten a lot of training while I was at the VA in Dallas, um, specifically with like prolonged exposure and um, cognitive processing therapy. Okay. So since some of our listeners are not as well versed with these modalities, can you tell us a little bit about what prolonged exposure and CPT what they are? Yeah. So I, I really love both. Both are, both are very similar, but yet both are very different. I would say with prolonged exposure, the main component that is most different from cognitive processing therapy is that in pro prolonged exposure, there is a designated time where the psychologist or the therapist and the client are actually processing the emotions and, um, the actual thoughts or, um, some of their cognitive distortions about the trauma. In cognitive processing therapy, it's a lot more based on cognitive therapy alone. So it's extremely structured. Um, you're looking at stuck points, which is basically thoughts that have been skewed due to the trauma and you're working to challenge them so that they can rewrite their narrative in a sense so that their stuck points are then, you know, returned to how it was prior to the trauma. Okay. That's interesting. I've never done prolonged exposure. Um, I did learn CPT when I was in Tallahassee. Um, and that's a really heavy therapy. I feel like a lot of my inmates, you know, that second time that they have to read their trauma narrative, um, you could tell it was very emotional for a lot of them. Absolutely. Um, and I feel like at the same time, that was probably the most significant or like largest amount of growth I've ever seen for inmates. Absolutely. I think, and I think the way that they structure the program that you're talking about was very skillful in that because in that program, they specifically have two phases. Um, the first phase consists of seeking their, uh, seeking safety and you're learning a lot of concepts and skills. Um, but you're also processing those concepts and skills. And then the second phase, you're going into dialectical behavioral therapy. And in that therapy is still skill based. So I think the program itself is structured in a way where they want to throw all the inmates, all these skills so that they're prepared when they go to cognitive processing therapy to do that, you know, really difficult work that they've been pushing aside for what, 20, 30 years. Mm hmm. Yeah, it's it's a very interesting thing. I think that I've always said I think the Bureau um, and in general correctional psychology would benefit from further incentivizing trauma treatment because mm -hmm. I think that's at the heart of most 
issues that people have. Absolutely. Um, I think a lot of people, I've always said for like drugs and stuff, like a lot of people don't wake up every day and say like, I want to try meth. Mm -hmm. Like it's typically like some sort of trauma that they've experienced. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that in combination with like cognitive processing therapy and, you know, DBT seeking safety that like not just stopping there, but like having the opportunity to continue processing your trauma after the fact is like really important for these inmates. Oh, absolutely. And I think that's why they they have the opportunity to also participate in a maintenance group after the treatment Mm -hmm. so that they and the therapist can continue working on whatever symptomatology that they believe that they still have or Mm -hmm. maybe just making sure that their symptoms are at bay. Okay. All right. So question I've always wanted to ask you, because I know you've worked with a wide range of clinical disorders. What is one of your favorite diagnoses to treat? (laughs) (laughs) I think my favorite one is, and we've had this conversation, you know, at work and stuff like that, but it's probably schizophrenia. Um, because I've always really been genuinely interested with serious mental illness. Um, I like how structured therapy is, but I also like the fact that it can go anywhere. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, but I think if, if you're talking about like the most fun, it's probably antisocial personality disorder. Okay. Um, because you deal with a lot of the things that you're not prepared to deal with while you were in training or grad school. Mm -hmm. And so I think. And also not only that, like while we're training in grad school, we don't really deal with genuine antisocial traits. Mm -hmm. We may deal with some manipulation or, um, you know, some disruptive behaviors, but not to the extent that we see in prison. Right. I agree. I love personality disorders. I think where we differ is like schizophrenia is kind of depressing (laughs) for me. Yeah. Um, I'll work with it though. You know, I have a guy right now on my caseload who has psychosis, um, but I think it kind of bums me out. Yeah, well, like, but you get to see how much they progress. And when they do progress, like, for example, if you have somebody that doesn't shower for a week and then they finally shower, it's rewarding and it's concrete. That is true. And I think that for me is is so different from all the other, you know, uh, diagnoses and therapies and things like that. Mm-hmm. What would you say has been one of the toughest disorders or clinical presentations that you've treated or worked with oh absolutely without even thinking borderline personality disorder (laughs) i can't even i don't think that i would ever hesitate on that answer um i think because it's uncertainty of everything Mm -hmm. like you know even though they you know they engage in self-harm to either seek attention or to you know uh get towards closer to a goal but I think for me, I worry about the extent that they engage in self-harm. Right. And I think that's probably one of the most unsettling feelings. Yeah, I think the engaging in self-harm is something that if you've never worked with it before, it's really jarring. Yeah. Um, and then we're always taught, you know, suicide risk assessments and like that everything has to do with suicide. And then you realize that a lot of these individuals are feeling pain, but they're self-injurious behavior is not always to kill themselves no it's often not to kill themselves it's just for attention or like i like to call it like uh an emotional release right 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 
to make sure they're not feeling that pain anymore, that emotional pain. Right. And at the same time, you still have to treat every gesture, every like self-injurious behavior. Like you still have to take it seriously, yeah. which I think is a hard balance. It is. Do you remember Dr. Rosenberg from Pepperdine? Yes. So she says something to us in class that I've always, that has always stuck my mind. People don't kill themselves because they want to die. People kill themselves because they want to end the emotional pain. Mm -hmm. And I think that helped me reframe as a psychologist, like, how am I going to look at this and how do I proceed with this? Mm -hmm. um, and I think reframing that myself also helped me reframe that for clients, which then turned them into looking at it like, wait a minute, I don't want to die. Mm -hmm. I just don't want to feel this pain. Right. So as long as we get them to this pl place of ambivalence, we know that there's work to be done. No, I think you said that beautifully. Like there is work to be done. And there are often times where the individual feels like, well, that's it. You yeah. Know, it's time to give up. <laughs> yeah. And that is something I know we try to do is to say like, look, there's so many things that you could work on. And there's so many things that you exhibited to us that you you know, you care about, like right. a lot of times I'll try and target like, okay, we have children, mm -hmm. you know, and that's something that's really important to you. Um, like certain relationships. Right. Um, okay. So <laughs> again, I, for those of you listening, I think because I have such a good idea of what Dr. Ye has to offer and because she taught me a lot of what I know, I, there's questions that I think I've always wanted to ask her. Um, and now I have the opportunity to do so. Um, what would you say the most challenging population that you've worked with? Because you've, you know, you've worked with veterans, you've worked with inmates, you've worked with uh, people that have been hospitalized, mm -hmm. the homeless population, private practice. Like, what would you say has been the most challenging? I think the most challenging has been, well... I look at challenging for me, I de define challenging as boring. Okay. <laughs> because that doesn't keep me motivated, right? Right. And so the most challenging population would probably have to be private practice. Mm -hmm. And it's something that I have always dreaded doing. And I did it at Pepperdine because I think we all need to have experience with that population. And the reason why I find it challenging is not to say that everybody's issues, you know, either way more or way less. But I think I tend to want to work with, you know, personality disorders. Mm -hmm. um, I love when people demonstrate disruptive behaviors. Mm -hmm. I really also love process oriented therapy that, you know, stems from like childhood trauma. Right. Um, and I don't know if it was because I was a student at the time, but I don't feel like I ever really got far right. with some of the patients there. Right. And so I think that was very challenging. And I felt like I hit a lot of roadblocks. But now that I'm speaking about it, I really do wonder if it's because I was in my first or second year of the program, mm -hmm. didn't know much. I mean, I had very little experience. So I wonder if it's that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think uh, to your point, like, when we are in our first or second year, at least for me, I really was so gung ho on like making change. Mm -hmm. And it, like I know earlier you talked about like things being measurable. I think when you're in private practice and someone comes in and says, hey, my wife does the dishes differently than me and I don't like the way that she communicates. Yeah. I'm like, OK, and yeah. like, you know, like take this somewhere else. Like someone else can deal with this. Like I want to deal with trauma. I want to 
help people that are in need. I want to talk people off the ledge from killing yes. themselves. Yeah. And sometimes private practice is just people learning how to talk more assertively or how to communicate. Right. Or, um, but like you said, I think it's it's a good experience for us um, because everyone deserves access to therapy. Absolutely. And I think another thing that was really difficult for me, and I don't know if you went through this, um, because um, me and Dr. Norfley had probably most of the similar training experiences through our doctoral program. And I never had to deal with pay. Like when clients right. paid, I never had to deal with that mm-hmm. because at URM, which was a homeless shelter, we didn't have to deal with that. Um, at state hospitals, we didn't have to deal with that. So for me with private practice, it was so awkward to have the client come in and say, okay, here's my $20 or here's my $40 right. for the week. And I'm mm-hmm. like, uh, okay. Mm-hmm. And I think also like the settings we've worked in there, there's not really a such thing as a no-show like when someone's in a homeless shelter and they live in the building you can go get them or like in prison you can call an officer and have them sent but with private practice if they don't show up you cannot go to their house and and get them so your ability to make money and provide treatment is contingent upon like the people's attendance yeah and Um, when you were talking i just thought about something same thing with risk right suicide let's say they didn't show up and they're they may be high risk for suicide that's actually really scary as a therapist because mm-hmm. you don't know where they're at, mm-hmm. right? What if they're not picking up their phone? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you call, you're supposed to call the police so that you can send them over there. But still, you're left with this unsettling feeling. Whereas in prison, we can go out and find them. Right. If they're in their unit or mm-hmm. whatever, we at least know where they're at. And if we can't find them, we can shut down the whole prison. Right, exactly. <laughs> you can do an emergency count. Like, yeah, there's and, options. There's options. Yeah, I think, you know, one thing that I've realized through talking with um, past uh, podcast guests like Dr. Choi, Dr. Lubach, um, is that, you know, private practice is a very valuable um, skill and like population. And that even though it's not for everyone, that there's something that can be learned from it. Absolutely. Um, And I think it's it's something that I recently have thought about doing like later on in life mm-hmm. you know just to keep because i think there there are a lot of skills that you kind of flex or you practice that are really important and i used to think like oh private practice is so boring but i think i want to reframe it as it's not my calling right but there are challenging people in private practice there are personality disorders there is suicide risk mm-hmm. and that my training did not necessarily point me in that direction, but it's not to say that other psychologists like aren't dealing with some of the same stuff that we deal with. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's actually, now that you're talking about it, I actually think it takes more skills to work in a private practice because if you think about it as a correctional psychologist, our skills are very honed in to Mm -hmm. risk, you know, crisis management, um, short-term therapy, Mm -hmm. But to conduct long-term therapy in a private practice, that's hard work. Absolutely. Constant treatment planning. Um, and some people work with their patients for years, years decades. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. You know, a lot of our inmates, sometimes they might be out in a year or two. And, mm-hmm. you know, or it just could be a, a brief interaction on Suicide Watch or, you know, in a hospital setting. And then that's it. But I right. think for private practice, some people you'll work with for 20 years. Mm-hmm. And to continue treatment planning, to continue conceptualizing to continue adapting requires 
a lot of like skill and patience and competency that, oh, yeah. you know, I think that is something that's really important. Absolutely. So for everyone listening, this is not a bashing private practice. <laughs> it's not. A podcast. It's actually appreciation. Yeah, it's appreciation. And I think that's the beauty of our field that this level of reflection, even in this mm-hmm. current moment, yeah, um, is really important and has kind of inspired me to take a different look at private practice. Yeah, me too. <laughs> I'm still staying in the prison though. Um, yeah, like maybe as a psychic. Right, I'm not leaving anytime soon. Right. Um, well, Doctor, yeah, I really appreciate your participation today. You've looked out for me since day one back in 2017, and you continue to do so. Um, and you know, I'm really excited that you got to come on the show and just talk to us about your knowledge and your reflections. I got you, little bro. I appreciate it, big sis. <laughs> All right, everyone, for those listening, this was another episode of 15 Minutes with Dr. Norfleet. Stay tuned. Make sure to comment on our social media and let us know what you want to see in future episodes. All right. Bye-bye. Bye.